March 7th, 1965 was a Sunday. And Sunday was the biggest day of the week for television watching in those days. And the ABC network was running a broadcast premiere of a long-awaited, star-studded, Academy Award-winning movie, Judgment at Nuremberg. The movie dealt with the trial of German officials, Nazi officials, who had been significantly involved in the horrors of the Holocaust and all of the atrocities against the Jewish people in Germany. In the middle of that movie, the news division interrupted their regularly scheduled program to show another film, film that had just come into New York from Selma, Alabama, had been developed and reviewed by the news editors who decided that this could not wait. And so 48 million people, one of the largest television audiences in history to that point, watched the scenes from Selma, Alabama, where a group of predominantly black people tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge on their way from Selma to Montgomery. And they watched the horror of state police and local police beating, clubbing, tear gassing innocent people on the streets leading to the bridge. The American people had seen pictures similar to those before. Four years before, they had seen pictures of the Freedom Riders who were beaten for riding on public transportation. And before that, or after that, about two years earlier, scenes of police with fire hoses and police dogs and billy clubs and tear gas with another group of innocent Americans that time in Birmingham, Alabama. But this time was different. 48 million people saw live action of the horrors at Selma and they were changed. There was a collective determination of enough that this could not go on any longer. The next few days, the phone banks and congressional offices lit up. Typewriters, yeah, typewriters in editorial offices around the country clacked. Opinions were changed. A lot of things happened very quickly. And on August 6th, just five months after the events in Selma, the President of the United States signed a long-delayed, long-promised Voting Rights Act. It was a large but still small step 
toward relieving a yoke of oppression that had lingered a hundred years after the emancipation. I bring this up for two reasons. One, because it has to do with Epiphany, and the second, because it has to do with the mission of the Church. An Epiphany is a moment of clarity when something that had been unclear or obscure or muddled becomes clear. It's a, an illuminating sentence in a, in a paragraph that you don't understand until you read that sentence and then you do. It's an aha moment. It's a moment when opinions change and sometimes it's a moment when lives change. Those 48 million people had a mass epiphany. Not all of them at once, not all of them at all, not all of them at the same time, but for many who watched, this was a moment of realization, their moment to say this is what oppression looks like. This has gone on too long. This cannot go on any longer in this country. In this season of Epiphany, Epiphany with a capital E is personified in the Magi, an Epiphany that deals with the Divine. They had seen a star in, it, in the East and knew that something had happened. And so they came across a desert from a distant land to Jerusalem, where they asked, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. And when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him? That gets us to the mission of the church. God's mission for the church is expressed in verse 10, that through the church, the wisdom or the ways of God and its rich variety would be shown to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, the people in Jerusalem were the rulers and authorities King Herod was there with all his deputies and scribes and chief priests were there as well providing counsel to King Herod telling him where the Messiah, the child, would be born. They all knew that God had little patience with selfishness when the powers that God had given them were abused for selfish interests. In Romans, Paul tells us that the rulers and authorities were instituted by God. God literally knew that we need order. That we need someone to make decisions, someone to make laws. 
That's how we know what side of the road to ride, to light, to drive on. We know that we have roads at all. The rulers and authorities were created for a good purpose, but some of them lost sight of God's purpose for their work and became selfish and greedy and used their power for personal interests. The rulers and authorities are not evil, but sometimes they are fallen. They were created for a good purpose, but sometimes they lose their way. The rulers and authorities, also known as the powers and principles, principalities, can be spiritual. They can refer to humans and to institutions. Walter Wink, in his book, Naming the Powers, says the powers are both heavenly and earthly, divine and human, spiritual and political, invisible and structural. Their impact is easy to see but they are hard to define. What kind of power is it exactly that keeps a nation of generally sane and compassionate people from dealing with the rampages of gun violence? What power is it that compels even Paul to say, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. These are the powers and principalities with which we have to deal, the forces in the world that we cannot see, we cannot really define, but they affect us and they affect the world. And it is through the church that the wisdom of God, the ways of God, are to be made known to these powers. It is for the church, by its performance of peace, by its rejection of divisiveness, by its display of living and peaceable difference. It's up to the church to demonstrate to the world and its rulers a more excellent way. There may be some, you may be one of them, who would say that we cannot make a difference, that uh, the selfishness, the greed is just too much, not only among the rulers, but even among ourselves. You could make a fair case for that argument. But I would mention a few things to all of us as we consider the mission that God has given us in the church. First of all, the work of the church is greater than any lifetime. The things of God take a long time by our standards to accomplish. And we know from recent and ancient history that the powers and rulers do not yield easily. The second thing is that we should not underestimate the power of God in whom we have both confidence and boldness and access. 
And third, it's not for our church, this church, by itself to change the world. It's for this church and churches like-minded with us to change this part of the world, to make our community, our part of the world better. So that we, when we provide food and clothing for those who need it, when we provide shelter and help in all kinds of ways, when we open our doors to all people, then our community is changed. The church is to be a beachhead for God's good future, a theater of God's works. And when enough people see others doing the works that God has called us to, to make things right, they will work with us to be part of the change. And finally, there's this. It is going to happen. The work of God in, through the church will accomplish what God intends, intends for us to accomplish. For God has put his immeasurable work power to uh, for God has put his immeasurable power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come through the power of Christ and his church the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks be to God. Amen.